0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the May 26th episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us on SoundCloud Instagram as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Catherine Lockmiller, with whom I will be discussing her poem to the dude who called me a long-haired faggot and my poem, I Alone. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of May 27th. On Tuesday, May 28th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 8 to 11 p.m., Ken Kong will be hosting his weekly The Underground Experience at 2601 on Central, which is at 2601 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic begins at 7.30. On Wednesday, May 29th, from 7.30 to 9 p.m., Lacuna Bar will be hosting its weekly open mic on-site at 831 North 3rd Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. On um, Thursday, May 30th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Long Publishing will be hosting its Phoenix Poetry Slam at The Lost Leave, which is at 914 North 5th Street in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by 6.50 to participate. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quinton Oney will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7.30 p.m. On Saturday, June 1st, if you are a youth poet between 13 and 18 years old and live or attend school in Phoenix, It is the last day to apply to become the first ever Phoenix Youth Poet Laureate. This is organized by the Creative Youth of Arizona and Reframe Youth Arts Center. And you can apply at cyaz.org. From 10 to 4 p.m., KJZZ will be hosting its Story Fest at the Mesa Convention Center, which is at 263 North Center Street in Mesa. I, Imogen A-Rate, your host of Poets and Muses, will be tabling there. So please come out and see all the wonderful authors who will be tabling and reading there. From 7 to 9.30 PM, daughter of Zen will be hosting her first Saturday open mic at the Black Cat Coffee House which is at 4730 East Indian School Road, Suite 120 in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. Now I want to tell you about a very exciting event that I will be participating in on June 4th, which is the first Tuesday in June at Film Bar Phoenix from 7 to 8.30 p.m. I will be reading a number of my poems with the accompaniment of the Phoenix Poetry Orchestra. You can get tickets at the door, which is at 815 North 2nd Street in Phoenix. And if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter, again, under Poets and Muses, I will update you when there are links to purchase tickets online. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Katherine Lockmiller. Hey Catherine! thank you for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi,
1: thank you for having me. Of
0: course, it's a pleasure. So please tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, <laughs> how much do you want to hear? <laughs> whatever,
0: you, whatever you want to divulge. Okay, I can talk mostly about
1: the things that are informed by the poem that I'm going to be, that I think we're going to talk about a little bit today mm-hmm. in your poem too. I'm pretty open in my work and in my, my professional life. I'm a trans woman, I'm very... I'm very active in the LGBT community here in Phoenix and in Arizona. I work a lot with future healthcare providers and health mm-hmm. science librarian. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I do involves not only teaching them like information literacy practices, mm-hmm. but one of the things I really love is that I've taken on a role as sort of a diversity inclusion guide uh, on our campus at, in Phoenix. Um, We don't really have an Office of Diversity and Inclusion serving my university. Um, Since I'm not here necessarily in a university context, I won't necessarily name my institution. (laughs) But I do a lot of work helping students and faculty and staff connect with the LGBT community and Mm -hmm. find ways to promote better health outcomes, Mm -hmm. to teach people health literacy things like say HIV and AIDS prevention or Mm. working with um, transgender patients who are seeking medical transition opportunities. Mm. So those are a lot of the things that I do. I come into that with a history as a trans woman with a very, (laughs) a very challenging history. Mm. Uh, I did not grow up in a particularly welcoming or kind household. Mm. Um, Was deeply, deeply closeted for most of my life and Uh, I came out at 26, and when I did so, I I lost most of my family and friends um, from that part of my life. It's taken a lot of time to recover from that. It's caused a lot of trauma, but that's what's great about poetry. I'm deeply invested in sort of like medical humanities and narrative medicine Mm -hmm. as ways to help us work through trauma, and build resilience, and develop understanding with
0: one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I see that in your poem as well. Oh, thanks. Yes. No. You brought to us your poem today, which is called To the Dude Who Called Me a long Hair Faggot. You were talking about transition or finding facilities to transition. I was wondering, in the valley area, are there many or is there any? Yeah,
1: so there's actually quite a few options here yes. that are developing in the okay. Valley. We have a lot of providers who are ready to help and very knowledgeable. Phoenix Children's Hospital has been at the front of wow. pediatric care for, for gender-diverse children, okay. transgender kids. Uh, Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale also is working hard to improve health outcomes all over the Valley. Uh, one of the older health care options has been the Parsons Wellness Center and here in downtown Phoenix which uh, okay. houses the Southwest Institute for HIV and AIDS which does a lot of work with trans people so we have an increasing number of options the challenge has been helping people find those options mm-hmm. and especially for our community members who maybe don't live in Phoenix but live in some of these sort of exurban parts of Maricopa County yeah. and then in the far rural parts of the state and right. especially in the far north, northeast corner of the state all of the the more extreme locations okay, mm-hmm. okay.
0: That's great. Good to hear. You mentioned the children's hospital. I was wondering if, since you are so well-connected in this area, if you can tell us a little bit about how young, because I'm not sure if the listeners are quite aware of how young children might start to identify as a gender other than the gender that they were born
1: from. Yeah.
0: You know, it depends.
1: Many trans people quickly recognize that their gender identity is not the same as their sex that they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. In almost every case, sex is assigned at birth based on genital presentation, Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't even work necessarily for all people, um, Mm -hmm. and especially not for trans people, because we don't know what exactly creates gender identity. We know that gender identity happens in the brain and in different parts of the brain, especially in the parts of the brain that form perception and visual identity and sort of imagination. Mm -hmm. Those are deeply entwined with how we conceptualize gender for ourselves. And that's not just trans people, it's all people. Mm -hmm. So most of us start conceptualizing our gender identity, uh, no matter who you are. As early as two years old, so before two years old even. People already have ideas in their little bitty sort of like baby heads Mm -hmm. about their gender. Most of those things are informed by what we kind of teach kids, Mm -hmm. you know, whether we do it on purpose or mostly unintentionally as a culture. So that plasticity actually, it starts to solidify very quickly. So by the time a kid is like five, six years old, their gender identity is often solidified. Wow. Yeah, which is why when we, when we talk about pediatric care for kids who tend to come out and they tell their parents, hey, you know, like, you call me a, a boy's name, but I'm really a girl, or you call me a girl's name, but I'm really a boy, and then we really ought to take our children seriously. Mm. They know themselves. Mm-hmm. As a culture, we tend not to, we don't tend to question our children who aren't transgender, right Mm -hmm. so like if my kid is born and the doctors assigned her as female and i name my kid jennifer and she always acts like i expect girls to act Mm -hmm. i never question that right in fact i often celebrate it because Mm -hmm. oh look like she's she loves her her dress or she loves all of these things that are very stereotypically feminine so when we have a kid who is born and we name her jennifer and then at six or seven years old, she says, actually, I'm a he, and actually, I'd like to have a different name, mm-hmm. like Jonathan or something. Mm-hmm. That's when we really get kind of conflicted and stuck, because mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense to us mm-hmm. for, for most people. So there's a lot of debate about what we do when that happens, but ultimately, most of the research, most of the scientific research, and there's a growing, growing amount of research, shows us that at least when we affirm and validate our kids identities that's healthy no matter what right right so when we validate jennifer who was assigned female at birth and still identifies as gender when she's t- as jennifer when she's 10 we tend to celebrate that mm-hmm. and we should definitely celebrate jennifer when she says hey i'm he and i'm jonathan and so we celebrate jonathan too right. as jonathan yeah, yeah.
0: thank you yeah. and i realized when you were talking about being able to Think of yourself as maybe I'm not the gender that I was assigned at birth as early as two. And it reminded me of development of theory of mind. And I, I think you talked about that, which is knowing that other people have their own identities outside of what we imagine they are. Yeah. And that developed as early as two. And I think NPR for Meet Across America or something, one of the articles they were talking about in terms of should we continue to celebrate certain writers when examining their history? Like Dr. Seuss, we have come to realize that they have a very problematic past in terms of stereotyping people. And they were saying that, again, stereotyping sets as early as, like I think, three years old. So that's all pretty much in keeping with what you're saying as well, and mm-hmm. with gender just being another slice of pie.
1: Yeah, it is. And... When talking about the struggles and the issues that trans kids typically face, not just trans kids, but gender non-conforming kids, or maybe like Mm tomboys or boys who are very feminine Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a trans kid but children as early as six years old can be vicious about patrolling and policing gender identity Mm -hmm. and often those things are tied to how we start developing very solid expectations for the world around us Mm -hmm. very very young yeah
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and especially when you are a kid and you're still developing and you're still dependent on your parents you kind of want your world to be solid right mm-hmm. you have more of a problem when things are just so transitory
1: that's right yeah we we Well, and I would, I guess I would argue in most cases for most of us, we, we, we still, we all, a lot of us back away and and resist maybe complexity or or change or uh, things that are, that are uncertain. And Yeah. yeah, we tend to be the people when we're like, for me, I'm 32 and I'm Probably a lot like the person I was when I was two. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. there are always some part of us that continues, right? Mm-hmm. And especially if it's a part of that we never need it to look at address, right. or whatever it is. But anyway, we can't go on this tangent as interesting <laughs> as it is. So let us go to your poem, To the Dude Who Called Me a Long-Hair Faggot. Would you like to read that for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: I'd be happy right? to. To the dude who called me a long-haired faggot outside fries. You know that fries, the one with the rancid milk and the carts you wouldn't touch because, God help you, you are not getting a BBP tonight. Where you buy a bag of corn chips and the weed smell is so strong that it comes home with you. Where you are 90% certain that every other cis-bro in this place is packing. It's basically murder, Kroger, but fries. Where you walk through the parking lot at dark, you are gonna hear how much. You are gonna hear your body compress, your skin sizzling, at least one phrase comparing your body to meat, the gristle of your being unopened and unpackaged. And then you come across this guy, the witness, the one who knows, who stalks and creeps back bent and wheezing, stares under the oblivion of his bloodshot gaze. You are something other, enigma, slab of flesh in the wrong wrapping. Hold up. Let me see that cock. Where are you going? Turn around, you long-haired faggot, and face me. The words in your ear, the line that you drew where the world ends and your body begins, vanishes. You spill the fear out, anointing all your mixed-up parts with oil, strike the match your nerves on fire, magma in your brain, your skin melts, you scream, get me out, I cannot be here. And you know, you feel deep in your liver, if the worst happens, the worst that all women feel will happen, that four-letter word I dare not utter, because the thought alone sins shivers and rattles down my spine. And I know... That if the worst happens now, it will be worse. Because no man wants to see what I am. When all is bare and uncovered, no man can unsee. No man can handle secrets in my eyes. These black pits burned with the sights of my trans sisters the ones who were here at Fry's, at Murder Kroger, all over this country who got slaughtered because some man felt he might be gay after raping her. And I am in my car, spilling out all this fire. Every hole in my body is a sieve. Salt and singeing sweat my scoured surface cracks. What am I doing? What am I really? Just words. These are only spoken skewers, not real ones. Skewers soaked with hate. Yes, they had an edge. It struck my brain, but here it is, and this is process, and I know what and who and that I am, and I breathe and breathe again. And still I am ashamed, but not for me and not this man, not the broken dude with the bloodshot eyes and the apocalypse clothes and the obvious high the system that shaped me, the system that breaks me and makes me fear for my life and makes a man's brain shatter under drugs and homelessness and the color of his flesh. It's the same. This system that packages power into aisles of affliction makes us hate each other, makes us other the very selves we need to be, the selves that get snapped apart and grinded and crushed and buried because it knows we cannot make it alone on our own. It knows I should be in my car crying and he should be coked up screaming, but I know it is not us. No, I am here now in this spot because we will not be beaten. We know who runs the market, and there is fire in our eyes. Thank you. Yeah, of course. (sighs) Yeah, it's a ride.
0: (laughs) It is. It is. And I remember I was reading it, and I realized how much of the panic that you felt. before you get to the ending part, where you kind of take back the power. But how much of the panic was in the structure of the writing itself. Yeah. All the the tight words, the compression of time. And it was amazing to read it. Thank you. Yeah, to see it in another form and hearing it. Totally different experiences as well. I forgot to ask you before, how did you come to write poetry? Because you talked about poetry being therapeutic.
1: It's really funny. I I never really thought of myself as a person who writes poetry. Growing up, I wanted to be a novelist. I I thought Mm -hmm. it would be so fun to write like mm-hmm. fantasy, science fiction novels I, I read mm-hmm. voraciously. Mm-hmm. But I never read poetry. It was not something I found interesting. I thought it was hard and it was weird. And <laughs> and then when I got into graduate school in English literature, I had a professor and I took a class just by chance on 20th century poetry by the book, in which we read not just poems, but poems that were written, that were designed to be written, all is a set within a book. And that to me felt more like a novel format, right? Like Mm -hmm. it was a narrative. Everything kind of had a place from beginning to end. And that began this journey for me in learning what poetry is and how dynamic poetry can be, how fluid poetry Mm -hmm. is. And it became this obsession that I've had since, well, it's been 10 years now. Yeah, where I'll write just constantly and then I'll I'll stop and then I'll write whenever I need it and Mm -hmm. poetry always has become for me this this cognitive artifact right I I can create it whenever I feel the need to let something out of me which is mostly new too I guess when I first started writing you know I felt like I had to be very intellectual and pretentious and (laughs) and like quote you know like T.S. Eliot or (laughs) somebody like Wallace Stevens (laughs) <laughs> all these difficult 20th century poets and and that was fine I'm not saying that that's a bad thing I very much enjoy reading TSLA and a lot of Stevens but a few years ago after I came out of the closet after I transitioned I started trying my hand at more I guess sort of like emotion first poetry where I would mm-hmm. let go of my need to intellectualize the writing and intellectualize the verbiage and mm-hmm. instead focus on what I felt totally and that's been what has informed my poetry now for the last five years I guess four or five years there are probably people who don't like that like could would read my poems now compared to my poems before I came out and think that my poems now are terrible um and there are probably people who think the opposite and for me it just sort of implies a point in time like I write now the way I need to write, the way that works for me, the mm-hmm. way that feels good. This experience described in this problem did not feel good. It was, it was one of the most... Uh, I felt very, very sort of opened to the world during that experience. Uh, mm-hmm. And as a trans woman, I spent a good chunk of my life not experiencing things like that, not experiencing the fear of being in a parking lot, uh-huh. right? Because people didn't see me as a woman. They didn't... Didn't notice me. I could do whatever I wanted without, sort of like, other than the fear of maybe like being mugged or something mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And in the last five years, I, I have experienced the world from a perspective that I always knew existed, but it changes when you experience it personally and yeah. when you experience it physically. Yeah. yeah. So my poetry has become more of a personal and physical experience, mm-hmm. um, conceptualizing the world as I see it now.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of great to look back in your poetry, right? And look at where <laughs> you're transitioning from literature wise form mm-hmm. of what speaks to you. Yes. And, and I think a lot of people, especially in performance poetry, people connect much more with the emotion than plural language or whatever it is, the metaphors and whatnot.
1: Right, and, yes. And um,
0: people almost need that visceral experience in some way.
1: Yeah. And I I, I don't know, I rather like it. I didn't I grew up in a very like I said earlier, I grew up in a very repressed household. I didn't grow up in a place that really put a lot of lot of emphasis on emoting. I didn't even know slam poetry existed till I'm I was in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know it was a, that was such a thing. Right. You know. Yeah. Right. And then and then I was under the impression that it was mostly just like sixteen year old goths. <laughs> Which which I would have been down with (laughs) when I was a 16-year-old goth. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Now, I I, I like what you mentioned, too. I like that idea of my poetry resembling my own life. That I I perceived my life as having a lot of... There was a lot of constriction, a lot of bondage Mm -hmm. for me before I came out. And my poetry often resembled that. It was very was very interested in sort of like neo-formalism and people who were very very cognizant of every metric foot every stressed syllable <laughs> and, and it's exhausting uh, yeah. A- yeah and letting go of that need and deciding oh, my poetry can be fluid it can be something that describes my experience and and in doing so, I think it. I still don't think that it's. I don't think it's stupid. I, I would never qualify highly emotional poetry as unintelligent. Um, and in fact, I think it tells a very intelligent story mm-hmm. when we try to explain our sort of authentic experiences to the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and especially those of us who have experienced the world as a raw and uninviting dangerous yeah.
0: space yeah yeah which is exactly this one i mean how, how else are you i mean you could do it in a very metaphoric way but it, it would involve a lot more process before you get to that right kind of distance to be yeah. able to do that
1: i think so and It's a poem that I am unfortunately one of those poets still at times where my imagery can be so arcane that I tend to have to input a paragraph of prose explaining what it is I'm actually talking about. (laughs) It's nice to write a poem where it's like, no, this isn't like Billy Collins telling you exactly what he's looking at a duck in the road or something. This is a person who really legitimately thought that they might be sexually molested and even killed. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a random random event. Right, right. Mm. And
0: that is a real threat if you look at the statistics, trans people, trans women especially. Much more like me to face physical violence. Not only that, more victimization is much more likely to go unnoticed and unsolved.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And trans women of color, I know many trans women of color, and they're incredible survivors and incredibly powerful women. But black trans women, my black trans sisters, they experience more domestic violence and abuse leading to murder than any other group of people in the United States. Yeah, trans trans women in particular are more likely to be in underground labor, prostitution, drug trafficking, the sex trade in general than anybody else in the United States. Mm-hmm. HIV contraction occurs at I don't have the exact number, but it's something like nineteen percent higher rate than it is for the rest yeah. of people in the United States. That number is even higher for Black trans women and then Native American trans women.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We could talk about these statistics all day, but yes. I want to go to your experience, your if you don't mind talking about, and what brought you to write this particular poem. Yeah, well, I
1: think I touched on it a little a few minutes ago when I when I sort of said how my experience I as a as a white trans woman who didn't come out until I was nearly twenty seven years old is that. For the first 27 years of my life, I didn't really experience instances of fear of violent retribution, fear of fear of rape, fear of, of harassment, being sexualized and objectified, mm-hmm. um, having my body perceived as an object. And, and I know better now. I, I look back at my past and see many instances where I was sexually objectifying myself, mm-hmm. but people around me didn't necessarily do it. Okay. I guess I can speak, I guess, in that regard to how visceral it is when I think it was after I sort of went through my social transition, which is when a sort of transgender person starts just identifying as themselves to the world around them. So Mm -hmm. when I, after that, I mean, it was something like, well, I I came out at work at a morning shift at the library I worked at and I went back to work in the afternoon and and people, and I I went to work as Catherine. and Mm -hmm. And 30 minutes into that shift, This old guy started hitting on me.
0: (laughs) It it, it took thirty minutes. Welcome to to
1: womenhood, Catherine. It took took thirty minutes. (laughs) So so (laughs) God. (laughs) That's how long it took for the white, straight guys' radars to go off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh another one, another possibility. That's right.
1: (laughs) Yes. Good times. So since then, obviously, my my life is as I see it when I when I go out into the world is a lot different. Mm-hmm. So it affects me too because I'm, I'm a long distance runner, so I'm a marathon runner, mm-hmm. and I have to be very cognizant of where I am at when I run at night or mm-hmm. when I run in different parts of the Phoenix area. There are some places that are safer, not just because I'm trans, and, and for the most part, when people don't see me as trans. They just see me. They pass by. They don't even say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to be cognizant of these things in a way that that I hadn't always been. So this experience that led to this poem, I was at a Fry's grocery store. Anybody from the Phoenix area has seen Fry's grocery stores. And it was definitely the equivalent of Murder Kroger, which is a Kroger in Atlanta, Georgia, that's famous for the number of deaths that happen at it. Um, So this this Fry's is how I imagine Murder Kroger to be. Mm -hmm. I always have a a story to tell whenever I leave it. Um, so this, I guess it was about, it was this year, was uh, January something of this year. I oh, wow. i was visiting okay. and um, just getting a few groceries. I was like buying some beer to take to a friend's house. That's wow. all. I just ran in I ran out. This guy who was not in a very good way, he was definitely high. I don't mean like weed high. I mean like, like lots of meth high probably, uh-huh. and he looked like he probably had bathed in a while. And he just and he was very angry. So when I walked out, he was yelling at somebody else, and then he just sort of saw me and he started yelling at me. And and what was really scary about it was people get yelled at all the time, especially by people who are not doing well. That's mm-hmm. not a surprise. What was really scary was when he started following me. Yeah. And he and he started following. He was. I don't know, 10, 15 feet behind me mm-hmm. as I was trying to get to my car just Jeez. by ignoring him as much as possible. And, mm-hmm. and that's when he sort of started calling me names, you know. at First, he was making all sorts of sexual indicators and then he started calling me names. I'm... Mm-hmm. Um, not sure what led to that. You know, and even to this day, I don't know, like, did he see me as just, like, a gay dude? Did he see me as a, for, for most people I've come across as quite the lesbian. So mm-hmm. I, I don't have any idea. What I know is that it was it was very scary. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, so, so it's not in the poem, was this event ended because somebody had already called the police on him. Oh, and great. as he was following me, a cop car pulled up. The cops got out, and they ushered him over to their vehicle Okay. So I got into my car and just completely lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's frightening. It's it's yeah. scary. And and the thing that makes it, which I mentioned in the poem, the thing that makes it more scary, is the constant realization that if something like that were to happen, like if a person were to decide that I was a target for physical violence, as a trans woman. There's always the fear that it can go further. Right. That they can feel like they, well, uh, there's a name for it, gay fright or something. I can't remember the exact term. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially whenever someone starts to feel attracted to somebody and then makes them feel like, oh, my God, I might be gay. Right. And then they kill that person out of retribution.
0: Right. Or denial of Den- they might be.
1: Denial. Hatred, disgust, right. right, and lots of trans women and across our culture and throughout our history have often been sort of signifiers of cultural disgust. We we tend to be perceived as the sort of like abyss, the sort of like Nietzschean abyss that no one wants to look into. So basically, when Nietzsche is saying, when Nietzsche is saying, you know, when you look in the abyss, become the abyss. So that's basically the dude that's that's sitting here thinking about me is look at <laughs> look at look at the trans
0: woman and become gay. <laughs> Okay. Um, Which is more himself. What what is in himself that he's yeah. ignoring? Or well, I mean when it's yeah. there are strengths involved, you have no idea really just Did like what it is. That-
1: you don't. And and so that's also the challenge for me as someone who works in health care mm-hmm. and as someone who works specifically in health disparities and health inequities, mm-hmm. that I can know in like cognitively and intellectually that Like, this is someone, he didn't appear to be, like, racially white. And he also had some serious, serious drug abuse Mm -hmm. needs, in addition to likely being homeless. Mm. Like, all of these things, to me, all of them work together to inform how people interact with one another. And what's really sad for me often is that I see those of us who experience the most cultural oppression Mm -hmm. end up fighting one another for the sort of bottom scraps yes
0: yeah
1: Yeah. and and instead of recognizing for me like i could walk out of that situation i could i could assume that that person was a bad person and he might have been a bad person Mm -hmm. but i think the greater lesson to be learned for me at least is that i need to ask myself why is that person doing this why is that person in this position why am I in this position and it's very light and it's I think it's very likely because we exist in a cultural framework that does not give opportunities help, opportunities to be healthy to to Latino men to black men to, to black women to Asian American women to trans women and for many of us those opportunities we have to make them and not all of us can do that not all yeah. of us get the chance to do that if I to have imagined myself in that person's shoes that night, I don't have any idea if he even liked me what was going on,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, at that moment. And I, I guess that, for me, that sort of knowledge matters. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want us to come out of these situations having missed the real problem, which is this sort of apparatus mm-hmm. that's at work. Mm-hmm racism, capitalism, in my case, fundamentalist Christianity. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, as you said, sometimes the vicious cycle that it is is that people who are oppressed turn around and find others who they can oppress as a show of power, a show of dominance. I, I wonder,
1: too, if it's as an attempt to see themselves as, as human. So, like, if all that we learn is power Mm -hmm. and opposition, then the only way to prove that we exist is by replicating power and opposition.
0: Yeah, in many ways, that is the dynamic that we operate on. And that is the dynamic that's being taught. That's the axis that that we are told to be on, basically. It's like, operate on this, that's it. Mm -hmm. Don't do it through other ways, which is kind of really sad um, yeah i
1: agree <laughs> yeah but i it's very sad
0: I, I thought it was great that you because i saw you read this February 15th so and you just said this happened in january yes. so you have very little time to process it really and yeah. i thought it was wonderful that you had the wherewithal to stop in the middle of that and to say let me look at the bigger picture and it's not always possible for people who are Going through that cathartic experience, reliving it while writing it to say, okay, I'm going to pull back a bit.
1: Yeah, that's where I feel that poetry has been one of those powerful forces for me because I was already writing out parts of this poem a day after this happened, mm-hmm. really, in an attempt to feel less shaky about it.
0: Yeah. I do the same with traumatic experiences. Strong emotions drive my poetry as well. So sometimes I'm just like, Ugh! I just yeah. have to spit it out. You know, it's exorcism, as I yeah. mentioned over and over again. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can understand that. But still, it's, it's also unusual to see somebody in the middle of writing this and say, let me pull back again a bit. Let me not be just one-on-one about the situations, not just about me and him, but it's about the larger system that allowed this sort of doggy-dog kind of a world to exist. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: It was really nice to see that. Yeah, and in some ways, you took back your power by saying that you ended up on a we have the energy. It felt very empowering at the
1: end. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. That
0: was ahead. Cool. Good. How <laughs> you achieved that. I really appreciate that, and I don't know that I did that pulling back, but I mean, I tried to a little bit, but (laughs) in my poem, which is also having to do with assault and also the persistence, the toxic world that allows it to continue, and my poem is called I Alone. Thinking about the past, reflecting on all the words I bitterly swallowed, that refuse to let go, just like my false hope. Believing that if I had simply said them out loud, you would have changed your dance. You would have shown empathy, though in my mind I know they would have made no difference. My ego wants to take charge. Believing it alone can make the difference. And hope, like cheerleaders who send up glitter to obstruct the view, soften, your monstrous outline, leading me to the false conclusion convenient to the spectators and you, the predator, that I alone would have made the difference." Hmm. Yeah,
1: I can see why it would be a challenging poem to read. Do you mind sharing the events that are described in this poem?
0: The poem is more not about the event itself so much the aftermath yeah. and the backlash when you're fighting when you're trying to fight for justice when you're trying to get justice when you're trying to get the system even to help to bring the perpetrator to justice what happens all the people will come out out of the woodwork, And to start picking you apart, picking your behavior apart as any sort of excuses to make sure that the perpetrator doesn't take responsibility for his, in this particular case, for his actions, but that you end up being the sole person who's responsible for all of it.
1: Yeah, the way that we put responsibility. And the burden of proof on the survivors, yeah, as opposed to the perpetrators,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. I very much enjoyed, if you can call it joy, I thought. I thought that the description of cheerleaders tossing up glitter was, I thought it was really vivid. I thought it was a very resonant image, and it definitely felt like there was some juxtaposition there, like some, Mm -hmm. some paradox in the sense that like cheerleading and like having fun and and things like sports which call to mind and things like winning and losing
0: right again that stereotyping that ultra stereotyping Mm -hmm. that is condensed in sports events right The, Mm -hmm. the testosterone and then you have these women who are playing these roles very ultra feminine roles of oh, we must cheer our men on, you know, sending up the glitter, kind of causing this illusion. Right. Which it is. Sports events are illusions,
1: basically. Right, yeah, performance. Yeah. But that the performance is a way of sort of restating and solidifying the patriarchy and the systems that allow especially women not only to be survivors of domestic abuse and violence but also turn women against one another Mm -hmm. if we're thinking of cheerleaders primarily as as women anyways Mm -hmm. and we think of it creates a situation for me where that I've experienced lots of people who you would expect to be on your side aren't because they're also a victim to sexism and homophobia and all sort like these structures again that are informing and allowing this behavior. And not only allowing it but they they make it easier.
0: Yeah, they do. They rationalize it. You seen that recently with Joe Biden, what's going on with that? And again, it's more about Oh
1: yeah, Brett Kavanaugh. Right.
0: <laughs> That's yeah, that, that one, ironically, that one has become the easier example because it's so obvious, right? Oh, Whereas sorry. Joe Biden is much more subtle. Mm-hmm. And But you see these women who come out in support of him and say, well, he touched me, but in a reassuring way. But then you look at how the circumstances and how different it is and how the power dynamic it is yeah. or how what they're telling themselves and what they're telling us and what we're seeing are different.
1: Yeah. And
0: you're like, okay, the women who experience this gets to tell their story. They get to set the perspective. Yes. You have to respect that. Yeah. And at the same time, you're like, girl.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> One of the things in your poem that I found to be, that just cut me, I think, to the bone is this last line, which... I think might be a reference to Robert Frost to the road not take or the, the road less traveled. I always forget the name of that poem. Yeah, because the the last line yeah. is that alone would have made all the difference. Yeah, yeah. Or that yeah something something along those lines. Um, so I, I wasn't certain if it was a direct. It's almost a direct quote, but which is interesting too because in 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 Frost's poem, which is a heavily misunderstood poem. There's lots of thinking about choices made, lots Mm -hmm. of thinking about having made potentially the wrong choice and looking backwards and reflecting and thinking, where did I, what did I do and when to end up right here? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, what was really sad about it though here is that for the speaker anyway, which which I'm saying is you, but it could be someone else. But for the speaker anyway, they place so much of the blame on themselves in this last line, mm-hmm. which is to me something that all of us who are women struggle with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if in this particular poem I did it consciously. I did write a poem recently, much more recent than that, that is a takeoff on the Frost poem. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, there definitely is that, whereas, you know, as you said, his poem was misread, and it's been interpreted as this piece of Americana where it's like, I alone makes all the difference. Yes. Kind of that kind of heroism, almost Hemingway-esque, right? Whereas he, in his poem, even if you just read the poem itself without any explanation, you could see that there is a lot of rationalization going
1: yeah. on. Internal conflict. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. there is that. And my poem definitely also has internal conflict because it was a very introspective poem where i'm thinking because i I was talking with my therapist about why i was blaming myself for certain things not so much for what he did but thinking well because i was saying to myself well i wasn't feeling well that day so if i had just listened to my body then this wouldn't have happened you know but she was like you're taking it onto yourself and in a way it's an egotism that I think a lot of women especially women who think of themselves as independent they refuse to allow themselves to acknowledge that they've been victimized yeah and in that way they also help the perpetrator yeah
1: no there's nothing wrong with me nothing bad happened and yeah, yeah I, I know i get what you're saying very much if i can just convince myself that there's nothing wrong then i'll be okay which i think and like you mentioned therapy i think in therapy where people talk about is really what what it helps is quite the opposite and it's it's recognizing that trauma Realizing that it's real, that it happened, and then living it out, and and then moving forward Mm -hmm. instead of repressing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and allowing that vulnerability and realize there's nothing that you could have done to... Because he was determined. The perpetrator was determined. The perpetrator made a choice. And even if you had changed everything that you were... Maybe you could have avoided him, but there would have been another. It's about again both from the oneself, from myself perspective, and also from the larger society. Though perspective is always we excuse the perpetrator so much. We there are just layers of excusing. There are layers of saying. No 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 no, you should have avoided this, you should have done this, you should have done that, you you know, coulda have, shoulda have. It's basically the <laughs> yeah the,
1: the right the
0: most important words in any addressing any sexual assault, sex like harassment, inappropriateness, inappropriate touching these things.
1: Yeah, putting the blame again, putting the blame on the survivors where women especially become responsible. For the attacks against us, yeah. So, so in in a way that's similar, you know, for for trans women, Mm -hmm. you have like someone who trans woman is responsible for tricking, like quotation marks, (laughs) like for tricking like someone right on the same time. So any woman, trans woman or not, who dresses like in a way that they enjoy and makes them feel good about themselves, right, is responsible for looking sexy and looking like they want it. Right, right. Yeah.
0: And then you're like, okay, if you have so little self-control, what the heck are you doing alone on the street, actually? Maybe you should be the one yeah. who's like having body <laughs> Yeah, just having people basically tied you, having kind of a, a body muzzle, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Because you obviously cannot control yourself. Yeah. So people should actually look at that and just be like, why is there an assumption that it's okay for perpetrators and because of societal norms they tend to be men. Right. And not because necessarily that men are born more likely to be predators. is that it's, they're bred to be more predatorial.
1: I agree. It's not it's not women's responsibility to prevent women from being sexually harassed, and in some cases, raped or killed. Like, that, that is not our responsibility. It, it is the responsibility of, of a culture to look itself, I think, in the mirror. And and I think in some ways, you know, these things are, are improving. I see it in, in ways, you know, like the Me Too movement and the backlash to some of Joe Biden's inappropriate touching over the years is finally, finally becoming visible I see this in light of having a president who has openly bragged about sexually harassing women,
0: but there he are... He promoting all of these guys. It seems like you can't go a day without saying, oh, this is a good guy. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah.
1: And yet I do know, too, that there are, like, we're having this conversation, and there are lots of other people that aren't just women who are you know, male allies who are also having this conversation, mm-hmm. thankfully.
0: Which is good. We should have these town halls, mm-hmm. really, to, to just get some of the misperceptions um, out in the open because it is a lot about stereotyping and gender mm-hmm. stereotyping. That reminds me, I had a question for you. I don't know how appropriate, if it's mm-hmm. appropriate a question because I'll tell you (laughs) okay yeah you let me know because I always wonder in terms of why people decide that is it a well first of all is it a decision a conscious decision to identify as a different gender than you were born with and does gender stereotype in societal norms play a part in that decision as well
1: yeah I think that's a really big question and one that would take answer it within two seconds oh, yeah <laughs> um i not. i can't <laughs> i just can't you know i can answer the first part in two seconds no mm-hmm. it's not this not a decision the gender identity part anyways you know all of us have a gender identity mm-hmm. that we're born with so like i i was born female like, my gender is, you know, I have a female brain, and there are parts of my body that are biologically female. There are parts of my body, too, that, are, that have the potential to be genetically female. So gender is sort of informed on six levels by external genitalia, internal genitalia, brain organization and makeup, so like neurological makeup, chemical interactions that basically occur between the parent and the infant before the infant's born, so it's like prenatal infant, and then genetics and chromosomal makeup. So all of these things work together to inform gender identity. Unfortunately, we sort of live in a society where when we are born, we don't take into account all of those factors. The only factors that tend to get taken into account are the presentation of external genitals. Primarily, it would be a small penis for roughly half the population, and for roughly half the population, it would be small like labial folds, so like vagina. Mm-hmm. um that's not even the case necessarily about two percent of the population exhibits external genitalia that doesn't meet those criteria we tend to use the term intersex to describe that two percent but we don't really have a way to know a person's brain makeup when they're born right. we can only sort of see genitals and we put a lot of focus on genitals because we live in a culture that is obsessed with sex <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we're forbidden to talk about it
1: yes well, well we're so obsessed that we can't say anything exactly <laughs>
0: So yeah, just to interject, I was reading a statistic that was talking about how people who present both genitalia, both sexes, are about 1% of the population, which is, in numbers, once that means at least seven
1: 70, p- million
0: people. 70 million people. So that's a lot of people in terms of just real yeah. numbers.
1: and and actually too so for like intersex persons and intersex people tend to have what is labeled in the medical field a disorder of sex development which is a terrible term but that's the term used in medicine that describes a range of different conditions or uh, diagnoses at before just after birth so a person who is intersex might have a different set of Chromosomes. Then okay. the majority of the human populations, most people. If you were to ask someone on the street how many sex chromosome pairs are there, they'd say two. There's XX and XY. Mm. But there are fourteen that we know of. Oh wow! Huh. So those other twelve tend to inform what presents as intersex. Do you and mind someone... saying
0: besides XX and XY, how else are they paired? you can have
1: exactly. yeah, you can have trisomy, which is the most common, which okay. is like three X's. Oh okay. Um, yeah, there's X alone, okay. so a single chromosome, XXY, okay. right. it's all a range. Um, right. So the technical term is 46XX and 46XY. Okay. And you can also have like 45XX and 45XY, mm-hmm. which are small differentiations on those chromosomes sort of genetically. So we're sort of learning, too, that genetics plays a much larger role in determining what a person is born with hmm. in quotation marks than like sort of what we tended to have thought historically which is we mostly and only for 100 years right we've only known about chromosomes in general for about 100 years of history and we've known about them for that long that's all to say that, that so that's actually about two percent of the population too so it's 140 million yeah. people which is as many people as there are redheads in the world
0: it's so, good to know. Yes. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's a good way for people to, to sort of envision what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And in comparison, about 0.67 to 0.75% of the population is transgender. Mm-hmm. So a very small portion of the population is transgender. Um, it's less than 1%. So I was born trans, and, and so my brain is sort of like a stereotypically women's brain, or whatever you might call it. So I've always been female. The, the sort of the, what I think you were getting at in the second part of that question is gender expression
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is how people choose to present themselves to the world so at a certain age at 26 I finally recognized that I wanted the world to see me as female I had known this for decades and it was life defeating for people not to see me and validate and affirm me as a woman mm-hmm. that really informed my decision to come out, Mm -hmm. my decision to transition, Mm -hmm. which wasn't a choice. Mm -hmm. It it was a hard choice, but ultimately it was very, very healthy it saved my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Now the second part of that too, I think, is that, (laughs) like at least for me, I very much like a lot of very feminine things. So Mm -hmm. the way that I express my womanhood tends to be pretty feminine Mm -hmm. at times. Though not all the time. And I break a lot of stereotypes myself. I'm heavily tattooed. I'm an athlete. I have never worn a dress to my job (laughs) (laughs) ever. (laughs) So yeah, when people from work see me in a dress, they're like, Wow, like that happens? You actually wear dresses. (laughs) That's amazing. So there are things I do that I think are very maybe like stereotypically historically female, but there are other things I do that or maybe more gender neutral or non-binary, just like the vast majority of us.
0: Yeah. One of the problem is thinking in binary terms, right? Yes. In- instead of thinking of them as the extremes of um, a continuum.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Part of a and part of a continuum that is not set in stone, but is changing though, yeah. because we learn more every day. Mm-hmm. Um, Odds are we'll learn about more sex chromosome pairings in the future. Like right. It's grown from zero to two to 14, and who knows where it goes from there. Right. As we look at individual strands of DNA and as we look at patterns that create and inform gender, mm-hmm. I think we'll learn more as we sort of go down the road. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and having both female and non-binary scientists in the field helps because they have skin in the game and they t- tend to think about that
1: well, yeah we do exactly <laughs> yeah. we, we help drive those changes you know i think a lot of us too are very interested right now in helping people recognize that non-binary people transgender people that they are biologically trans they're biologically non-binary I think there's a large minority of people who want to use the word biology as a weapon against mm-hmm. trans people. You know, say, they say things like biological female and biological male as a way of sort of like preventing trans people mm-hmm. from entering into that category. Mm-hmm. They're sort of weaponizing biology. Biology yeah. is just as much a human construct as culture. Biology is a way we look at the world Biology is a field of science that has only existed for 250, 300 years. And it is one that is also changing. It's not Mm -hmm. something, again, Mm -hmm. that's set in stone. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's willingness to accept also that what you observe in nature might be very different than what you have in your mind as a concept of what is possible.
1: Yeah. And what we observe in nature is variation in gender and sex. Yeah. (laughs) So There's a lot
0: of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean,
1: there are species of fish that can actually change their yes. change their sex genitalia, like their, their genitalia, in order to reproduce. So if you have a, some species of fish that you're just a bunch of females that are swimming around in a circle, then one of them takes on a role as the, quote, male and grows a phallus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, just. For reproduction's sake.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. And then there's self-reproducing ones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting how nature works, and we keep forgetting that we're part of nature. <laughs> we're just yes. Like, yeah, we're part of it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we also manifest some of these. If we see it in other species, it might very yeah. well be possible that we exhibit that, that we just... They're just in such minority, so scattered that we haven't really been able to observe that. Sort of like the black swan, you know. So we went yeah. to Australia. Nobody knew swans came in black. Until I went to California, I didn't know carrots came in other colors. That's
1: Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that either until I moved to here. And people started shipping the carrots from California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we learn things, and we grow, and we adapt.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the more we learn, the more we hopefully understand and can process that. Hopefully we become more accepting of the fact that, oh, well, yeah, this happens. Yeah, You don't know, see it often. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Yes. Lack of sort of evidence for a
0: thing mm-hmm.
1: doesn't mean a thing doesn't exist. Right, exactly. Yeah. exactly.
0: So it's like Joe Biden's. Well, no, actually, that's not, there's no lacking in evidence in that. Forget what I said. <laughs> what well, anyway, it's been so much fun. Um, but before we conclude, I have to ask you where we can see you read. Do you go to places to read often? There are lots of poetry events here. But...
1: That's good to know. I, I'm actually fairly, so I'm fairly new to the valley. So I've been here for five years. I took a break from reading poetry for a number of those, actually. And it's so my first event that I went back to poetry reading was this February one. You heard hey, the poem that wow. I delivered. Yeah, so I'd, I'd actually gone to a, an open mic or a slam in a long time. and Well, I'd never gone to a slam. Yeah, I'm actually looking for more places and opportunities to read. One place that you can find me often it's not poetry necessarily, but it's still narrative, and I still deliver it like poems, is The Moth Story Slam at the Crescent Ballroom. I will be putting my name in the hat to tell a story at that event, and I would totally market The Moth Story Slam. It's it's amazing. It's at the Crescent Ballroom once every month. It's like the last Thursday of the month or something. Anybody can participate. They have... I think 11 stories a night so okay. everybody throws their name in a hat and then they pull it if you, you get your name pulled out you go up and read or not read you go up and tell your story and so cool. it's like five minutes of excellent storytelling
0: nice yeah Nice. yeah I've heard about it I've yet to go because I keep doing all the poetry stuff yeah,
1: well <laughs> you'll have to let me know about some of them <laughs>
0: yeah yeah at the beginning of each show we talk about all the events for the next week so yes Yeah, you have a week free and sometimes we just listen to the beginning of the show. That's the (laughs) challenge. It's a a week ahead. (laughs) Yes, yes. well, I figure, you know, a week ahead, give you a little bit of free time. I mean, it depends. Sometimes you find you have some free time. You're like, let me listen to it and see what's (laughs) happening. Do some poetry. (laughs) Yeah, why not, right? And then how. Can we follow you via social media platforms? Yeah. Which one do you want to tell us
1: about? <laughs> I am on Twitter. That's it. And so my tag is at this underscore cat underscore hisses.
0: Oh, so this cat hisses.
1: Nice. Yes.
0: Nice. Do you have a cat? Two. Cool. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for Thank your time. Thank you. It's so fun. Looking good, good. I'm glad. fun for me too. And that concludes the Sunday May 26th episode of Poets and Muses. I'm your host Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us on SoundCloud Instagram as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also sign up for our newsletter at the upper right hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.